14, starting at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I'm going to hand over to John. Good morning, everybody. We're in our series in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We've been looking at spiritual gifts together over the last few weeks. And this is our last, uh, our last kind of morning looking at 1 Corinthians together. We're looking at the second half of chapter 14. Please keep your Bibles open um, and be carefully considering the words uh, I'll be speaking. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Father, we want to ask for your help this morning. Even as we've read this morning's verses, we recognize that the application of them, the understanding of them, is, is crucially important. And um, we ask that you'd help us in that task. Uh, we've been praying that you might show us Christ this morning, that we might see your glory in the face of Christ. And that we ask for above all else. And that it might serve the end of building us up into the body that you are calling us to be. To be the crossway church that you're asking us to be. You're making us into with Christ as our head. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did, did anyone go to a football match yesterday? Nobody. Nobody at all. I thought somebody might have. Actually, Graydon's not here. He would have been the person who went to a football match yesterday. Well, if, you, if you've ever been to a live football game, it's quite an exciting experience. I haven't been for years, but it is an exciting thing to do. But there you are in the stands, and you're looking out on the field, 
and there are two teams, well-organized, possibly, you know, su- supporting one another, serving together, working together, everyone playing their part to reach a goal, or several, possibly, if possible. But the point is that actually, I think as Paul's been talking about the church in this section of 1 Corinthians, it's a little bit like a football team. It's a little bit like that. Church is kind of like a football team in which people are in different positions. They're playing different parts, but they're serving together. They're working together. There's a team element to all that we do so that there is sort of a goal that we reach together, a greater good, if you like, that we're working towards together. But I think if you think about that picture, where are you in that picture? Where are you? Are you in the stands, looking on? Are you a spectator? I have to say, if you're a spectator, you will eventually get bored. If you're a spectator in the church, you will eventually get bored. Or you'll become cynical. You'll be a critic. You'll be sat there and stood there thinking, well, if I was the ref, if I was the goalie, if I was the center forward... But you'd become a critic. Church is not a spectator sport. That's really what Paul has been saying in these three chapters. Church is not a spectator sport. Maybe you're on the team, but you're trying to figure out what your position is, where you fit in, where you contribute to the game. Actually, Paul's been really helpful, hasn't he, in in reminding us that whoever we are, if we are living with the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives, we have a contribution to make. And we might need help figuring out what that is, but he wants to encourage us. Whoever we are, we've got a part to play. Maybe you're very much on the field. Maybe you feel like you're in several positions all at once. You're trying to do far too many jobs. Maybe actually you're playing your part pretty well, but the the question is, are you actually serving for your glory? Is this about you? Is this about you shining? Or is this actually about the greater good? Are you serving for a cause that is bigger than yourself? The cause of Christ and his church. Well, Paul's been writing to Corinth, this context in the first century, uh, it's a sort of house church context where these churches are trying to figure out together really how they do this, and they're not doing a terribly good job. They're getting it wrong in all kinds of ways. If we were to read the whole letter together, you'd see there's any number of different issues that are going on in the life of the church, and this is one of many. But Paul's point here is that we are gifted for love. We're gifted for love and for the kingdom of God, not for ourselves. And that's essentially important, essential, as we think about the contribution that we're making. We each have a part to play so that we can together grow into the body of Christ, with Christ as our head. And last week, as we started chapter 14, we thought about how we use our gifts in the way of love. If gifts are for love, then how do we use our gifts in a way that will bring about love? How do we use our gifts in a loving way, you might ask? We thought about how gifts are to be used to build the church, not build ourselves alone. 
how gifts are to be used to bring understanding and not to bring division in the life of the church. And how gifts are to be used to bolster our mission together as we shine for Jesus in the world. And that's all from the first half of 1 Corinthians. But there's one more thing that Paul wants to put his finger on before he moves on from this subject. One more thing that promotes the way of love as we use our gifts. And it might surprise us what that thing is. It's actually organization. It's orderliness. He says order is really important when we use our gifts. Chaos, chaos is unloving. But order, this is the big point, enables gifts to be used in love. Think about that football match again. If there is team chaos, if everyone's just told, just go for it. Go out on the pitch. Have we got 11 people? Great, go for it. If there's no order at all, if there's no organization, then what happens in that chaotic environment? Well, what happens is the weaker, less pushy, less confident players cannot contribute and they're marginalized. And the more confident, the star players dominate the game and get all the action. That is what happens when chaos ensues. It's not quite a free-for-all. What happens is the, you know, it's the kind of survival of the fittest. And Paul says that's not how the church functions. It's not about survival of the fittest. But if a team is organized well, if there is order in the life of the team, and everyone knows their role, and everybody respects one another's role, and everybody knows their place on the pitch and the contribution they have to make, then everybody has the space to flourish and use their gifts towards the bigger picture of love. And that's his point in this last bit of 1 Corinthians 14. Look at verse 40. This is where he finishes the whole conversation. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's his point in the whole section. So we're going to see how that plays out then in the life of the church. And the first thing Paul wants us to consider is the order of worship. The order of worship. Look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now, I don't think he's suggesting that this is how every single church meeting should and must function. Think about the context that he's in. It's a house church context. Probably that is what was going on. Probably that is the context. They were small enough to do things in that kind of way. But at the very least, he's painting a scenario. He's saying, imagine a situation in which this is the case. Well, how are you going to function well? How are you going to do this in an orderly way? But at least it assumes one very important thing, doesn't it? That everybody's ready to contribute. There are no spectators in this church. Everybody's there to make their contribution to the greater good and not just to watch, uh, to watch. But Paul says everything must be done so that the church may be built up. It's orderly. 
It's orderly. And because he's been talking about tongues and prophecy in particular, and we've been thinking about those over the last few weeks, he then says, well, what does orderly look, orderliness look like for tongues? Well, look at verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, as we've been thinking about tongues, we've thought about tongues as this heavenly language that God sometimes gives people in order to help them to pray, to express the inner longings of their hearts. And it's a private prayer gift because it's not understandable to other people unless it's interpreted. Now, when Paul speaks here, I don't think he's saying, just go for it, speak in tongues. If an interpretation comes, that's fantastic. No, I think it's governed by verse 13 that we thought about last week. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. The assumption is you speak out when God has given you understandable words to express so that others can hear it. Otherwise, he says, stay quiet. Speak the interpretation or stay quiet. Not everyone should speak either. It's interesting, isn't it? Not everyone should speak. Two or three, one at a time. It may be that you've got something you really want to contribute. He says, hold back. Hold back. Order is more important than everybody having their say. And then he talks about the orderly use of prophecy. So that's tongues, 29 to 32, is the orderly use of prophecy. Now, as we've been thinking about prophecy, we've been thinking about big P prophecy and little p prophecy. And big P prophecy is really God's revealed word through the Bible. It's unchanging and it's authoritative. Little p prophecy is the kind of way that we express God's word to one another. Sometimes that's in really uh, unique and special ways, but it's going on all of the time as we declare to one another the glorious wonders of God in all their kind of manifold wisdom. That's big p prophecy and little p prophecy. And little p prophecy, the prophecy we do as we speak to one another, always sits under big p prophecy which he's going to make a point about in a moment. But we've also thought about how prophecy is both broad and narrow. We think about it as narrow very often, like it's only if someone predicts the future or has some miraculous insight into our lives. Well, that does happen, doesn't it, from time to time? It really does. But actually, there's a much broader definition which that is included in. So in Acts chapter 2, seems to be the case from the way that Peter preaches that every one of us becomes prophets as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We all get to prophesy to one another and we all get to declare the wonders of God to each other. So there's kind of big P, little P, there's broad and there's narrow. And so at Crossway Church, we want to talk prophecy up. We want to say, listen, Paul says it's a really important element that will build up the life of the church. We should be declaring the wonders of God to one another all of the time. We also want to talk it down and say it is going on all the time. It's going on in all kinds of different ways, in the way that we minister to one another, in the way that we talk in life groups, in the way that we we preach the gospel and we preach the word of God in all sorts of different 
ways. So what does he say about prophecy? Well, look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So do you notice that's, that, that's the implication, isn't it? Little p sits under big P in that sense. Prophets speak, but everyone else keeps their Bibles open, basically, and weighs carefully what's going on. That's why I absolutely love to look out and see people with their Bibles open. As I'm preaching the Word of God, God willing, there's a prophetic edge to what's going on. It's not just my words, but the Holy Spirit speaking through me. But that always needs to be weighed. If ever a preacher says, close your Bible, I've got a special word, you need to be extremely wary of that. You need to say, no, actually, I'm going to keep my Bible open, thank you very much. So little p always sits under big P. That's what he's saying. Verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Prophecy is divine revelation. But it still needs order for it to be used well. And actually, what Paul is saying here is that love is more important than the gift itself so that it may be used in an orderly fashion, but also there may be times when it's more important to be quiet than it is to speak. Just to illustrate this point for you, if you come and have dinner at our house, at the end of a busy day, everyone comes back from school or at work, and we have dinner together around the dinner table. And part of what we do is we talk together as we discuss our day, and we like to hear from everyone about how their day has gone. But there are a couple of rules. The first rule is that when one speaks, the others listen. I know I'm trying to make it sound extremely idyllic. If you actually do come for dinner, you will know the truth is not always the same as the sort of imagined, desired result. But one speaks and the others Listen, they're to be quiet. This is true, isn't it, Faith? More or less. But another thing is also true, that after a while, the one speaking needs to give way to the next person. Because what happens is this. Otherwise, it's total chaos. Nobody can hear what's going on. Nobody's really listening to each other. But more than that... Who do you think is the person that gets left out? I have three children. They are 12, 10, and 7. And it's true, isn't it? That actually, it's the 7-year-old who struggles to get a word in edgeways, struggles to make her voice heard, has to wait patiently, and needs someone to step in and say, actually, I think we should probably all listen to Daisy now. The point is this. That's what happens in the church. It's the smallest, it's the weakest, it's the, the more marginalized who suffer if there is chaos, 
if there is disorder. The person with the biggest voice and the microphone, <laughs> well, he can talk all day, can't he? And sometimes he does, but hopefully we won't be there today. But that's the point, isn't it? That actually we need to be organized in such a way that we all get to use our gifts to the greater good. And Paul says, listen, that is a principle in God himself. Look at verse 33. God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. He says, it's a principle in God, therefore it should be a principle in the church, and it's also a principle that is worked out in the world as well. So that's the order of worship. The next is the order of creation. And that's what he's talking about in verses 34 and 35. Someone said to me uh, last, at the end of last week, I got an email and just said, listen, I've never heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 14 before, and it was really, really helpful. Thanks ever so much. I don't normally get emails like that, but it was really good to hear. It was encouraging to hear that, but I was thinking... Listen, you, you don't know what we've got to preach on this week. <laughs> but listen, this is what Paul says, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the church. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So what's going on here? Why does this sit suddenly here in the middle of this conversation about tongues and gifts and order in the life of the church? Well, I think what's going on is this, that just as Paul has been talking about the orderly use of the speaking of prophecy, there is also to be order in the way that we weigh prophecy. So let me explain what I mean. So I don't think Paul is saying here women should never speak in the church. Because actually that would undermine something he's just said in chapter 11. If you turn back to chapter 11 and verse 5, he says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Well, we're not going to get into head coverings as well as chapter 14 because we're not looking at chapter 11. But do you notice, he doesn't say they mustn't, pray or prophesy, he assumes they will be praying and prophesying just like the men. So he can't simply be saying women should never speak in the church. Actually, if you go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, this is exactly what the prophet Joel says will happen. The prophet Joel, as Peter quotes it, says this in verse 17 of chapter 2, Book of Acts. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So both the Old Testament and Peter quoting it in the New Testament in the book of Acts and Paul speaking in chapter 11 are all saying that women should be speaking and ministering in the life of the church. So I don't think Paul's saying women should never speak. It would undermine pretty much everything else that's said in the New Testament and the Old. But nor do I think he's just saying 
this is a problem with women in Corinth. Okay, so sometimes people will say, well, this was a particular problem that was going on in Corinth. There was gossiping amongst the women, or there was heckling amongst the women. Now, actually, Paul says this is advice for all of the churches, all of the churches. My assumption is that in the churches, there were probably both men and women gossiping and heckling in the life of the church. My experience of Crossway has been that it's the men who heckle, not the women. (laughs) That's not a challenge, by the way. But it does happen from time to time. So I don't think it's just an issue in Corinth that Paul's addressing. I think there's something important that we need to understand from this that applies to us today. What is it? Well, I think it's this. Just as he's been talking about prophets speaking and then that being weighed, which is exactly what he says in verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, the others should weigh carefully what's said. He then says, well, let me tell you about orderliness in that speech. He's now saying, let me tell you about orderliness in that weighing. And his point is this, it's not appropriate for women to weigh in on the weighing of prophecy. Now, in one sense, he's already said everybody weighs prophecy. We all have our Bibles open. But I guess the issue is when something controversial comes up or something said that actually needs the oversight of the elders in the church. At that point, it's an act of spiritual headship. It's an act of oversight. And consistent with other places in Scripture, Paul teaches that actually it's only qualified men who should be in that place of spiritual headship in the household of God's people. Now, most of the time, that isn't an issue, which is why he says in verse 29, everybody weigh. But there will be occasions when it is an issue And actually, it's appropriate for the Word of God to be applied in a directive way in order to govern the direction of the church. And at that point, Paul says, that is the role of not all men, but qualified men in eldership. And he says that because that's the order of creation. God has made us, men and women, equal, 100% equal, but also different. And that difference means that we complement one another. One of the ways that we're different is in terms of spiritual headship. It doesn't mean you're the boss of absolutely everything, but it means as we seek to kind of lead in the home spiritually and lead in the church spiritually, there's a role, an important role for men to play in that. So one of the ways that we are different is in terms of our spiritual headship in both the home and the household of God. And Paul seems to be linking, he draws a direct line, it seems, between headship in the church and headship at home. In a house church context like Corinth, they might well be the same thing, actually. Or his point is simply this, if you have questions about any prophecies, don't weigh in during the meeting. Take it up at home. And in a first century context, there wouldn't be a category of adult single women who are unattached at all to some kind of household. So how do we figure that all out 
in the 21st century at Crossway Church? Well, I think it's our conviction here amongst the elders at least and in terms of the church as a whole that God has made men and women equal. And he's also made us different and we complement each other. We want both men and women to flourish in their gifts in the life of the church. We also want to ensure that the spiritual oversight of the household of God follows a biblical pattern. With only qualified men, not all men, qualified men serving as elders and weigh in prophecy where necessary. you put this in its context, what Paul's saying is that this is the way of love, actually. To seek to honor God in this area is to be loving in a way that will result in the whole church, men and women together, flourishing as we each play our part. So I want to maybe liken it as an illustration just to help us a little bit in terms of ballroom dancing. Maybe you've seen Strictly Come Dancing. I guess in ballroom dancing, there is always someone who leads and there is always someone who follows. Now, traditionally, that was a man and a woman, although I noticed that in the kind of latest edition of Strictly, I think those boundaries are being pushed. But even that, when that's the case, you need someone to lead and you need someone to follow. That's how dancing works. And it works and it results in both people flourishing and producing something beautiful together, if you're a good dancer, of course. But if you have no one leading at all, you come together, right, who's going to lead this dance? Oh, you can. No, you can. No, you can. You won't go anywhere. But if you both try and lead, well, it's chaos. And that's Paul's point here. Actually, we flourish together when we respect the fact that we are equal, when we respect the fact that we're different, and that we complement one another in the kind of dance that we're involved in to the glory of God as a body under Christ as our head. So that's the order of worship. That's the order of creation. Thirdly, the order of authority. And this is where Paul wants to finish things in his argument. Look at, uh, so it's the final area, really, where order is necessary. And it's the order between the church and... Jesus, that's his point in this last section. He says, which way round does that order go? Actually, it's the order between the body and the head, we might say. And Paul outlines it, verse 36. So, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. You see the levels that he's talking about here. He says there's the church. If anyone at all who is recognizing their own giftedness is existing, then what are they to do? Well, they're to submit to the Bible, basically, to the word of Paul, which is the word of Jesus, he says. True spirituality, a true use of spiritual gifts, means that we listen carefully to Scripture 
and apply things in a way that doesn't just serve ourselves, but genuinely is an act of love that serves others. He says that sits under his word. He says, listen to my words to you. Now, that's not just any old person speaking. This is the apostle Paul speaking as an apostle. And the apostolic witness is what gives us our New Testament. It's the revelation of God through Scripture. But he says, listen, as I talk to you, what I'm telling you is what the Lord is commanding. Therefore, it cannot be ignored. So you have the church, you have this kind of apostolic witness, and then you have the Lord at the top, Jesus himself. So what do we do when God's word says something we don't like? For example, verses 34 and 35. What do we do when God's word says something we don't like? What do we do when there are competing voices in the life of the church? What do we do when things descend into chaos? Well, together, together as the body, we sit under the word of God. That's what we do. And he sorts it out. (laughs) And he helps us to tease out the detail. Why is that? Well, it goes all the way back to where Paul began in chapter 12. He says, listen, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you have God's Spirit living in you, you are truly spiritual. And true spirituality means we will live with Jesus as Lord. That's what it means. Which means we'll submit to what the Bible teaches. Whoever we are, whatever we think. So I don't know where you are in that big picture. You know, the football match that I was talking about at the beginning. Maybe you're on the, in the stands right now and you're thinking, I'm not quite sure about this Christianity business. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure I like everything I hear even at times. I'm not sure whether this is really going to be good for me or not. Well, here's my challenge to you. If you are looking for something that will confirm you in everything you already believe, if you are looking for something that will simply make you feel good about yourself as you are right now, then it may be that what you're looking for is not a real God, but a figment of your own imagination. If actually your God always agrees with you, And maybe he's not God at all. Maybe it's just looking in the mirror. If your God always agrees with you and never challenges you, it may well be you've made him up. But actually, if there are points where God convicts you and challenges you and calls you to repentance and faith and changes the way that you even think about the world, well, it might be a sign that you're onto the real thing. It might just be a sign that you've found the true and living God. And occasionally God does offend us. But I want to assure you he has been an equal opportunities offender of all people throughout history. Because every one of us needs to be challenged. Every one of us will have points at which we disagree with God in our hearts. And at that point... 
He calls us to submit to the voice of Jesus. Submit to the voice of Jesus and make him Lord of your life. Because that is the place where we will experience true love, true joy, really begin to live according to the design that God has made us and flourish as a community just as God intends. What about you in your use of gifts? What about you as you think about how you play your part in the life of the church? Listen, all of our giftedness is in order that we might marvel at and cling to Jesus. It's our head. It's his voice over us that is more important than anything else. And all our giftedness, all of our, all of our contributions, they count for nothing at all unless they lift our eyes to him. Which is why I think he goes on in chapter 15 to say this. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you and of is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. And so on he goes. We're not going to preach on chapter 15 as well. But do you see the point he's making? Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, nothing else. Stand on the gospel. That's what the gifts are there to help us do. Because where else do we have to go, friends? Where else do we have to go? What were we singing earlier? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. Think about that football pitch. Are you playing for your glory or for God's glory? You're nervous, not sure where to begin, how to play your part. Well, friends, it's the power of Jesus. It's the power of Jesus that puts us on the pitch. Let's pray, and we'll break bread together. Father, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a challenge to us. This whole series has been a challenge to us as we've thought not simply about the contributions that we make, but the greater good. This is all for the glory of King Jesus and a body that is united and built up. 
that really stands on the truth of the gospel. And so we pray that you'd have your way with us and where we are challenged, where we are offended, where we are upset. Bring to us the comfort of Christ, we pray, that we might experience the true love and the joy that is found in him alone. And as we break bread this morning, Father, I just want to pray. So hand back to Matt. I just want to pray, Father, that you would grow us in a unity that is flowing out of Christ Jesus and nothing else, that we would find our unity in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. It talks about the greatest gift of the Spirit in giving us, uh, us new life. It says, Then your Spirit gave me.